Welcome. This is Karen Modakaitis, and you're listening to How She Really Does It, the place where inspiration and possibility meet on KDRT 95.7 FM. Michelle Woodward is here today. I'm so excited. I always am so excited to talk with Michelle. We have great conversations. And this week, we're going to talk about what does it mean to think bigger? And we're not talking about Kardashian, being a Kardashian or being famous, but what does it mean to think bigger? So I invite you to join our conversation and I will circle back with you afterwards. Thanks so much for listening. Michelle Woodward, hello and welcome back. Hello, hello, hello. So today we're going to be talking about what does it mean to think bigger? Yeah, I think this is such an intriguing topic because so many of us think thinking big means we need to be a Kardashian. You know, we need to be everywhere all the time on everybody's lips. Um, And to me, that's that's not necessarily what thinking bigger is is necessarily all about. Have you given a lot of thought to this idea? No, I think about this all the time. Oh, you do? Mm -hmm. Right. So tell me what you're thinking. Nobody will listen, just us girls. Well, and and I think the immediate thought is, oh, I have to be Kardashian. I have to be, you know, world famous. I have to be Oprah Winfrey to make an impact. And I don't think it has, thinking bigger doesn't have to be that way. I think one of the most important things about thinking bigger is to think about um, whatever you're trying to accomplish, not just with blinders on about accomplishing this thing, but what is the context you know, what is the context in which I'm working? Um, so an example might be um, in your in an office setting and maybe you're kind of bored and you need you think it's time for you to be promoted. You, you need to think about how do promotions work in this organization? Um, how is it that this all flows? Um, maybe promotion is a limiting thought. In other words, what is it that I really want? And does that mean a promotion or does that mean a raise? Or does that actually mean a new job in another organization? Do you know what I mean? To me, that's how you really think bigger is you think about the context of it. No, I agree because I think sometimes people don't really think about that and think, oh, well, I've done this amount of time. So if they respect me, I'll get a promotion. Right. Instead of thinking, do I want a promotion? What do I want? And don't you see that as being the thing that most people discount is going in and checking in with what works for them? Right. Especially if you work in a highly rigid organization where, you know, you spend 6.7 months in this role and then you take on that role and then you take another step and another step and another step. So you can think, well, all the superstars get promoted in 3.52 months as opposed to. 6.7 months. So if I want to be a superstar, I need to get promoted now, but you need to stop and think, is that really what I want? Or is that a, is that an ego need or is that really an intrinsic need? 
I think we have a lot of ego needs around, you know, go big, think big. Um, It's a lot of external validation, I think, when really the successful part comes from when it's a really an internal drive. So why do you think, what's the promise in these ego needs? That life will be easy. Mm -hmm. And... um, and it maybe I don't know what do you think? Maybe it's something about I'll get my way, <laughs> which I think a lot of people secretly have that idea that they would like to get their way all the time, mm-hmm. what they want all the time. What do you think? I I very much think it's life will be easy. Um, the ego needs uh, once it's it's almost the red carpet. Once I get this, then everything else will be this red carpet rollout. And I just have to follow this this red carpet. Yeah. It's like the right. path. It's the yellow brick road. It's the path. Right. And I'll be safe. I think yeah. that's the other thing is I'll be safe. Right. My, and know. I will have mattered. You know, I read an article that rec- recently that was talking about how important it is for humans to think, to know that their lives have mattered. That they get meaning from the idea that, that my life has mattered. And so, you know, if you're the regional vice president, maybe your life has mattered. Mm-hmm. But I think there are ways to realize that your life matters that may be different than that. I mean, I would be a great regional vice president. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it's not just that, but just to think that that in itself is the solution to feeling like maybe what I'm doing has no meaning. But meaning to who? To me, to the world. You know, I do think people wonder, you know, is my life but a, you know, a pebble thrown in a pond, right? And so for some people, thinking bigger means to, that they have a lasting legacy or a lasting impact. And yet when you try, I think when you strive to have a, have a broad legacy, sometimes it's like you're working too hard at it. Well, and, and it just seems to be too outcome-focused, Hmm. And instead of being part of the process. Because things are never one and done, are they? Mm-mm. No. You know what I mean? It's like, like, oh, if only I do this thing, if I only go big here, if I only I wear, wear the big red ball, gra- ball gown, you know, that's going to establish me. And then, then it'll all just be cake from then on. Mm-hmm. But the truth is, nothing is ever one and done. So the the thing about thinking bigger is I try to think of, okay, so what's the state of play now? Like right at this very minute, how am I, how am I doing? And how do I amplify that slightly? You know, how do I take it up a notch just to see what that's like? Because I could take it up a notch and say, it's not what I want, right? It's not good for me. It's not like I could be on a different, I don't like to say the word D-I-E-T, but I could be on a different eating regimen, right? Mm-hmm. And I could decide to take that up a notch and I could not be nourishing myself, mm-hmm. right? So that's not necessarily the case. But if I'm doing something and I think, oh, maybe I need a little bit more of this, I can see if I can amplify it. And if I like it, I can see if I maybe I amplify it a little bit more. If I don't like it, I don't have to do it again. Mm-hmm. I like to think of it as experiments, And so what can you go test out? Because sometimes I find that the idea, what we think intellectually it's going to be, 
and the reality, there can be a big gap. Yes. And so to be able to go and test it out and experiment, you know, and it could be in the sense of like, for instance, I've had a client who uh, recently bought a house and she, when first started out, she had this idea of what she wanted and then, and she was also in the, the, the real estate market was really scarce in her, in her area. And I, and I said, well, you mean she was in a beautiful situation. She did not have to buy right away. I said, well, go, go on a treasure hunt. Look at it as a treasure hunt and go and see how it feels as you go into these spaces. And her real estate agent was so kind of shocked because she would go into places and sometimes she'd just walk out and she said, nope, that's not it. Or sometimes she, and, or she put boundaries because her daughter was graduating from college and she said, well, I understand that all these homes have come up, but I'm leaving town and that's okay. I understand that a lot of them will be sold and that's okay. And I will come back. And then she started experiencing the things that she thought she wanted. And as she thought about it some more, she realized actually she wanted something a little bit different, right? Mm. But it was this process. And then all of a sudden it all just kind of came together and so I give that as an example of we have this idea when we first start out, but when we go out there to see what's available or see what it's like, you know, and it could be you think, oh, you know, um, a lot of people's goals used to be, oh, I want to be on Oprah Winfrey, right? And there's no, there's not the Oprah Winfrey show anymore, but, you know, do you want to be on TV or I want to be a keynote speaker? Is that something that you want? Right. Or I want to be a leader in this organization. Is that something that you want? Well, and so I know people who were on the Oprah show. Right. I mean, and it did not materially change where they are today. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe they had a few new experiences, but they didn't become household names mm-hmm. just because they're on the Oprah show. I used to do a lot of keynotes and I stopped pretty much doing keynotes after I stood on a stage, there were, you know, probably a thousand people in the audience and the lights were super bright and I was up on a, you know, kind of felt like a tall stage. Lights were super bright. I could not see one person in the audience as I was speaking. And I thought to myself, I need to see the audience's eyes. For me to be at my best doing what I do best, I need to look them in the eye. And this kind of keynote, this thing right here, I do not like this. Mm -hmm. So I pretty much have de-escalated my emphasis on trying to land those kind of events because I I don't like them. Mm -hmm. And so I do think you owe it to yourself um, to test and try, as you were saying, and to kind of really feel it out. As I said, make that little little choice. Do I want a little bit more of this? Do I want a lot more of this? And, and why do I want it mm-hmm. um, to understand, you know, what's the scale that's going to work right for me? Um, you know, is is one scoop of ice cream enough or do I need to eat the whole thing? Mm-hmm. I'm just saying, hypothetically, that's a question one can ask. Well, and I think it also goes back to like I've had clients, you know, who've been down in Silicon Valley at the Googles or the Facebooks, right? Whereas for some people that may be the potential epitome of what they think they want. And for some of them it is, and for some of them they go, oh, this isn't what I want, right? I want, like you with being able to see the eyes, I want to be, I want to work in a place where it's smaller, where we all know each other. There's nothing right or wrong with that. No. There's nothing, and and can't that be, like, so if you go from a major corporation with a worldwide corporation 
to something smaller, could that be thinking bigger? It could be thinking bigger because, again, you're thinking about the context, the context of what that move is going to allow you to do. So, for instance, you might go from a big a Facebook, um, a Google, to a smaller company, but you might have an expanded role. You know, you might be able to manage a team where on in the bigger corporation you couldn't. And so it could be bigger. It could get you a different job title that makes a longer, you know, different, a real difference in your career. So I do think, you know, thinking that way is, is what's really helpful. The other thing I think we need to think about is how calculated can you be when you think about being bigger? In my experience, bigger sometimes is happenstance. It just happens when you are showing up in the world, doing your good work, and letting your intuition lead you. So for instance, last week I did a Facebook post that took me probably two minutes to write, maybe, maybe three. Um, I knew what I wanted to write. I wrote some notes, but then I just sat and I wrote it and I posted it. And right now there are 1300 likes and almost 700 shares of that post. That was not at all anything like a, a strategy I didn't have, I had no strategy. I had no intention other than expressing this thing that I felt like I was perfectly positioned to express. And I think that that's another way of going big is I I was, I felt very brave to post it and, um, you know, kind of vulnerable to post it, but the results were, it's probably the most popular thing I've ever read, written. Wow. So it was you speaking your voice or owning your voice and putting it out there. And being brave, right. Mm -hmm. Having an opinion can be very brave. Mm -hmm. And I think these are important things to give examples of, you know, what does it mean to think bigger? Right. Right. And, And going back to earlier when you're talking about meaning is, don't you think we also just need to stay out of other people's business about how we may be impacting other people's life. Cause so often somebody will say to me, well, I'm, I'm only a grandmother. I'm just a grandmother. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, but you're making an impact on your grandchild. Yep. You know, and, and it really is not for us to judge how somebody else gets yeah. meaning. I have this guy friend named Bob. I think everybody probably has a guy friend named Bob, but I have this guy friend named Bob. And Bob was talking to me about his wife, who's a friend of mine. He said, I, what I don't get about my wife is she'll spend all day cooking dinner. He said she'll go to like three different markets and she'll find this different stuff and she tries these recipes and it's all really fancy and none of us care. And she works so hard at it. And I looked him right in the eye, eye and I said, do you have any thought to this is the way she finds meaning? This is the way by by laboring over these meals and creating something delicious that that to her is deeply meaningful. So because you don't relate to it, why not just embrace it? Mm-hmm. And he's like, I never thought of it that way. And they ended up having a really great conversation where, she, you know, using the five love languages idea, you know, she, she saw creating beautiful meals for her family is acts of service. Mm-hmm. And once her husband kind of got where she was coming from, 
he became her biggest fan, biggest supporter. And I, and I, so I think, you know, as you're saying, it's not for us to judge how other people find meaning. If somebody has, finds meaning in restoring an old car, great. If someone finds meaning by doing a master swimming event, good for them, mm-hmm. right? Even though it's not our choice, we can support their choice and help them find the way, if they want to, to think a little bit bigger mm-hmm. and support them. So, for instance, let's say you, let's say your sweet husband decided to restore a car. Right? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I just. But let let let's say to help him think bigger, it might be just not going to a road rally in Northern California, but we could go to a road rally in Oregon. We could go to a road rally in. Las, you know, in Las Vegas, you know, support that person. It wouldn't be kind of an imposition on the family. It would be a wonderful thing to do. That's another way of thinking bigger. And that's an important key is to reframe it. So instead of thinking as it as an imposition, it's about how do we make this work as a family? Yeah. And I mean, in, in my own marriage, that was a huge shift that I had to do because for my husband in his own career and the things that he wants to do and how he wants to help people, it's really time intensive, you know, with a great deal of travel. And I could look at it as you keep leaving us, which does not do good for a marriage, or I could look at it, okay, here's what you're going to do and how can we support you? And then there were times that we would go along for the ride right? right. and we would be there and make it really inclusive. And, um, and so that, that I think that mindset that you have, if you're on the support side, is an, a, a form of thinking bigger. Right. And if you're the person who has the thing to know that you have a partner or you have support that can allow you to think bigger. So you don't think, oh, you know, I'm just a grandmother. You know, people would laugh if I got into master swimming. Right. That, you know, you have a partner who says nobody's going to laugh. Everybody's going to applaud. Let's do it. Yeah. How can I support you? Exactly. That, that, that is so important. And again, going back to what works for you, I mean, I think, I think you and I continuously talk about this, what works for you and then letting go of the meaning. I mean, I don't know, but I, when I was younger, you know, especially because I was so seeking other people's approval, I want to know was I do, was, what was I doing? No, what I was doing was making an impact. And what I've learned is that it's really none of my business because sometimes those seeds get planted and it takes 10, 15 years for somebody to come around and say, oh my gosh, thank you. And sometimes it can be, you know, a sentence that I said that I don't even remember. It's sometimes it could be a show or whatever, but it, it can be something that we didn't even realize the impact that we can make. So it's about really about for you is showing up and doing your work. So about five years ago, I think it was about five years ago, I was asked to be a speaker and I could see everybody's eyes. So I said, yes, I didn't know that at the time, but I could see everybody's eyes, which was great at an organization called Academy Women. And it was originally started to support the female graduates of the military academies, because as you may remember, I don't think the military academies started allowing women to enroll until the late 70s. So there were very few women and, um, and the ones that stayed, you know, they really needed some sort of organization. So this Academy Women uh, came to be and then they allowed any female officer in and then they took a senior female non-commissioned officer. So from my perspective as a speaker, it was a really very rewarding kind of speaking. We were at the, uh, the 
I always get the name of this wrong. It was at Arlington National Cemetery. There's a Women in Military Service to America uh, m- memorial, and they built a um, like a, a hall, an auditorium there, where this that's where this conference was. And so I stood there and I gave my speech about how to figure out because it's a uh, about what work do you do when you leave the military was the conference. And so I was sort of, how do you, you know, how do you figure out who you are at your best and how do you determine your strengths, your values and your priorities? And I had this whole, you know, PowerPoint thingy that I was doing and, and it was very well received and I was very happy. They invited me back the next year and I was standing, you know, waiting to go in for my session. And this woman uh, that had organized the event brought this very tall, beautiful African-American woman up and she said, I want to introduce you. And she introduced me, the woman. And the woman shook my hand and said, and she had gone to West Point. And she shook my hand and she said, I want you to know you changed my life. Mm-hmm. I had never met her before. <laughs> I mean, I really had never met her before. I said, did I? And she said, the speech you gave last year, she said, I was working for Target in their logistics department. She said, I was on the fast track in their management. And I heard you speak. And I realized that I needed to make a change. And she had um, gone to a, a nonprofit that gets uh, veterans to volunteer in their communities. It's called The Mission Continues. And she said, the reason I, I left my good corporate job at Target to do this work is because this is what I really need to do. I had no idea that my little PowerPoint could have that kind of impact, right? And yet it did. And I think what it was when I prepared that thing, I just thought, what did these people need to know? You know, these women sitting in the audience, what did they need to know? And I, I had a pure heart, if you, if you will allow me to say I had a pure heart. And I created, I tried to create something that I thought would be beneficial. And I think whenever you come into it with that attitude, that energy, people, somebody's going to be impacted. But I think what you said, a pure heart, when you show up like that, because that story that you just shared with us is an example of what it means to think bigger, right? The fact that you're willing to go out there and speak from your pure heart and you let go of that outcome of, oh, this is going to change their lives. It's What is some information? What do they need to know? You give it to them and then they take with it what they need to and then look what happens a year later. Right. And that's why I think letting go of outcomes becomes so important. What do you think? Yeah, and I think the other, I think let, letting go of outcomes and something that you mentioned, you know, le- letting go of the need for approval by others, but also letting go of the need for permission mm-hmm. um, from others. In other words, you know, yes, I did get invited to this thing, but I didn't ask anybody to pre-read my presentation. Mm-hmm. I didn't ask anybody to, like, I didn't ask the organization that asked me to speak, Academy Women, to edit my my presentation. I see so many people who, you know, they have a book in them, but they need somebody to give them permission to write the book. You know, they want to have a, com- a difficult conversation with their boss, but they need somebody to give them permission to do it. And I do think this is something you need to grow out of as a human being is is it, I, and I don't mean to be rude and I don't mean to be they give yourself permission to be a jerk, but do give yourself permission to do the things that you know you need to do and not wait for somebody to tap you on the shoulder, especially women. You know, we wait for somebody to tap us on the shoulder and say, oh, you're ready to be promoted. Mm-hmm. 
whether than rather than going to your boss and saying, I've done these, these, this thing, this thing, this thing, this accomplishment, this accomplishment, this accomplishment, I'm ready to be promoted. Mm-hmm. I did that once. Did I ever tell you that story? No. So I was out on maternity leave. And when I came back, everybody that had been at my level before vice president at that time um, had been promoted to senior vice president, but I hadn't. And so I walked into the chairman of my firm because I was working very closely with her. And I said, hey, I noticed everybody was promoted while I was on maternity leave. And she said, yes, I think that's right. I said, but I wasn't promoted. And she said, oh, I said, I think I'm ready to be promoted. And she goes, okay, what title would you like? (laughs) And I paused for a minute and I said, queen. And she said, that's taken. (laughs) (laughs) but I do think if I hadn't spoken up, I would have stayed a vice president when all my colleagues had been promoted the way that thing was organized. It kind of, we kind of kind of came in as groups. If I had just sort of been a good girl and wait for somebody to tap me on the shoulder, it might not have ever happened. Mm -hmm. How did you get the courage to go in and ask for what you wanted? Excellent question. Because I had a great relationship with my boss and um, and I knew how she was wired and I knew what she valued. Um, and I knew I didn't have to go in with some big presentation that I could do it the way I did it and she would respond. So there was a great level of trust. Um, and so I think whenever you have that kind of trust with somebody that you work with, it's easier to have the difficult conversation. But before her, there was something else. Um, was there? Well, Do you know my life better than me? Don't, no. <laughs> don't, don't you have to have a great relationship with yourself? Oh, true. 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 And I was 30, I was 33 at the time. So I must say that I, I have a, a different and on many levels better relationship with myself now than I did when I was 33. But at the time, given the context of everything, I, I was doing pretty well uh, with myself at age 33, I think. Mm-hmm. But I think you're right. Because I'll see my clients struggle with that um, in the workplace, in that in a very similar situation as that, and one you know needing that permission, that approval from somebody above, versus if they have a great relationship with themselves and believe that they do good work, where then they then they can read, okay, my boss, and how how do I need to go into this meeting, right? And um, so for, for my clients, it's about getting them grounded and rooted in themselves and their strengths and how they are, they offer value to the company that they work for and then walk in and negotiate what it is that they want. But it's also the imposter syndrome comes in there, right? Like, who am I to be promoted to senior vice president? I mean, I just had maternity leave. You know, they did me a huge favor of letting me recover from a C-section, how great they were, Right. Instead of saying, you know what, I'm, I came back after maternity leave. I do great work. They can count on me. I really contribute here. I have a client who's a CFO and worked many, many years for this company and was on an eight-week medical leave mm-hmm. and came back two and a half weeks early. And the big reason was the guilt of doing the eight-week medical leave and then taking a couple weeks of vacation, right? And so and learning how to... Um, and it's that whole thing. I mean, what she's starting to realize is that, that the being a martyr 
and you know, where she takes everything on so that that determines her worthiness. Right. And, um, but so whether it's the imposter syndrome or being a martyr, because then you show people, look, this is how valuable I am to the company. Yeah. And it gets back to this topic. The other topic that we talk about all the time is that lack or abundance, you know, like, um, I have to, I have to pull 12 hour days Mm -hmm. and I have to work on Saturdays because if I don't, they'll replace me with somebody else. Right. Or, um, or there's not enough to go around and I have to make sure I get mine. And so people convince themselves that they need to work these killer hours. Um, when really, if you did a time log, your productivity is probably really only about six or seven hours a day for most people. So if you're at the office 12 hours a day, you've pretty much wasted a lot of time. So, you know, it's, it's that, that, la- that feeling of, of I'm not enough, mm-hmm. just fundamentally I'm not enough, that I think gets us in so much trouble. Yeah, it's time to get over that nonsense. I mean, please, you're plenty good. As If you're breathing, you're enough. That's it. If you're breathing, you are enough. But yeah, so whether it's the imposter or the I'm not enough, it's all, it's all rooted in the imposter. It's all rooted in the I'm not enough. Right. Instead, it's about really looking, you know, taking an inventory of what are your strengths? What value do you give your employer? Right. Right. And, and, go ahead. and knowing when like, okay, there are things that I'm not particularly good at. One, QuickBooks. I'm not very good at QuickBooks. So instead of beating myself up and saying, oh my gosh, I should be better at QuickBooks. I should really go take a class in QuickBooks. I, you know, I'm a loser because I don't do QuickBooks. You know what I did? I hired somebody to do QuickBooks for me, right? I, because sure, it's something I could get better at, but it's not something that brings me any joy. So that I, I, I have, I given up. There are things that I'm not particularly good at baking. I'm not very good at. So I don't, I don't do that. If I want a baked good, I buy something. Um, what else am I not particularly good at? I'm not really, although I say this and then I'm going to back off it. I'm not really good at pursuing details over a period of months. Um, like when I worked at the white house, I did, I was very good at details and I'm very good at details, but in a like, I can do like five or six weeks max, then I'm done. I'm not, I just am not interested in sustaining being extremely detail oriented for a long period of time. There are some people who are, thank goodness, my accountants are, right? So I know that about myself. I don't beat myself up about it. I find people for whom that is their sweet spot and I partner with them. And I don't say, gosh, Michelle, you really should be good at juggling details for an entire year. Like if I had to be a lab scientist, you know, looking through a microscope and curing cancer for 15 years, you know, I I would drive me, I couldn't do it. But how great to have that awareness so that when people offer me an opportunity where I have to control details for a period of plus six months, I can say, no, thank you. Instead of feeling like, oh, I'm a big loser because this is not my strength. Do you know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. That's identifying your strengths. Right. And I, the other thing I think that's important is um, one of the things that I see is as a struggle of asking for what I want. You know, it's, it's, not, it's not entitlement. 
Like really when you're grounded and when you know yourself, right, and you know your strengths and you understand your value, it's not about being entitled and puffing up and asking for more than, you know, your value. Thoughts? Well, you know, I think about um, when, how, how men are often promoted more than females. Um, and, you know, there's so many studies on this and we talk about it all the time, but and a lot of times it is because a guy looks, uh, what is the statistic? They look at a, a job posting and if they've got 60% of the requirements they apply and women need to have 90% to 100% to even consider applying. And I think that some of that bravery, some of that confidence, um, I think we, we, you know, women need to stand up and, and have a little bit more of that so that we don't um, hold ourselves back. So I have a totally different, so I have a, just a story to maybe help cement this in for people. And you can tell me if I'm off base on this. So my kids went to this preschool in town. That's a co-op and you have to work, you know, part of the deals you pay your preschool dues, but then you also have to work because that's the only way you can get the teacher to kids ratios is by parents working in this preschool. And all of our, all four of our kids have done it. And it's hard because one day a week you're working at the preschool. It's like, I don't know, I think you have to be there 830 to 1230. So it's four hours. So it's a chunk of time. I guess one of the things that the preschool is having now and they're in their probably 60th or 65th year is there are parents that want their kids to go to this school, but then they say, well, we should be exempt from the working because we are, we work full time. So we Mm. should be exempt. And what people forget is that this is a choice program. Mm-hmm. And there are other programs, right? And, and in our house, we were both working full-time. We fortunately had flexible enough jobs where we could make it work. So my husband would work really early in the morning. You know, he, it, we would just make it happen. And, I, and, and in my community, I think a lot of people, there's, you know, there are people that don't, but a lot of people that do have flexible schedules, you just may not want to work on a Saturday instead of, a, you know, a Thursday or work early mornings or late at night because it's an inconvenience, right? So that's how families with two full-time incomes work at this preschool or then there's the people who, you know, maybe have a single income and work, but there's choices. And so my explanation to my client this morning was I use this as an, as a scenario. And I said that when you say I shouldn't have to follow the rules because look at my hardship, this isn't the right program for me. That's kind of a bit of entitlement and you can tell Mm. me where I'm wrong. So that there's that, but you can say, Hey, look, there's Monday through Friday which day would work maybe better and how can I go in and negotiate that? Because maybe within my work schedule, you know, these are the days I absolutely cannot take off, right? Or like the other thing that the school has is you have like work party hours where you have to contribute beyond the regular work week. So some people, a parent that I know right now who's in it, he is really busy during the year because he's a, he's a college coach. So he did a pro, he took on a project over the summer when he was on vacation for a few weeks to get his hours counted. And I think that's the example of the difference of asking for what you want that fit, that fit like the boundaries of the organization, the company, right? The value that you bring versus entitlement. What do you think? I agree. And, you know, I often will talk to clients who are job seekers, like especially when we had the economic downturn and so many people were out of work. Um, I, I really highly recommend that anybody who's looking for a job do volunteer stuff 
And people are like, but Michelle, I need to be at my desk from eight to six, you know, applying for jobs. No, you need to be out in the world is what you need to do to uncover a job. And you could give an organization 10 hours a week and you still have plenty of time to look for a job. But my my point is to people, if you are really good at, at database management, then go to the boys and girls clubs and say, I'm not really able to coach the basketball team, but let me clean up your database for you. That's playing to your strengths. That's within their boundaries of what they need. If you come in and say, I'd like to manage your hedge fund, you know, they're going to say, no, we don't need that, right? Mm-hmm. Or like in your, your um, nursery school example, you know, maybe a parent travels all the time. Maybe they're in sales and they travel all the time. But what if they said, I'll redo all your collateral material? Mm-hmm. I'm happy to do that. Mm-hmm. It, it would be totally in the school's best interest to say yes. So I do think you can ask for what you want, as you say, but within the context of what the organization, you know, what do you know the organization needs, what their values are, what their mission is. Um, and in some ways that can help them think bigger too, rather than thinking, you know, we need parents only 8.30 to 12.30. You know, we do need parents who are HVAC specialists um, to keep our system running. That could count. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, it's, it's, it, it's so important to think about it in terms of the context. And again, when you're asking for what you want, does it fit within that context? Yes. Or is it something that you're puffing up? Because the other thing that I see people go is, well, I deserve this. Mm. Right. Which I think is just this form of puffing up from the, and it's the counterbalance of the whole imposter syndrome. What do you think? Right. Well, I deserve this kind of is like um, justification. Sometimes it's a justification for bad act. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and when you say, I deserve this, it's almost kind of to me like you want somebody else to say, yes, of course you do. Go ahead, right? And um, that is not always the best friend thing to do. Um, when the clearer thing probably is to say, this is something I really want. Mm-hmm. And it's also a vulnerable thing to say, this is what I really want, because somebody could say to you, what are you, freaking nuts? Mm-hmm. And then you feel all shamey and stuff. So, yeah, I don't like that. I deserve this. No, I don't like it. I, I, I think it's just a whole form of puffing up. And again, when you talk about the shaming, because when we, you're right, when we say this is what I want, just because you want it doesn't mean you'll get it, but at least you're putting yourself out there. At least you're trying to make strides to get it. You're having an opinion, mm-hmm. right? This is what I want, like your house hunter. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I want definitely want three bedrooms so my college graduate daughter can come home whenever she wants mm-hmm. or whatever you, whatever you require. And it's, there's no shame in saying this is what I need. You know, I need a house with three bedrooms. You know, I need a house with no steps because I have replaced hip or something. I don't know. Um, I need a ramp. I don't, you know, you, you, somehow it's okay to ask for those tangible things, but it's less easy to ask for the intangible things. Like I need respect. (laughs) I need kindness. You know, I need time 
Like I, I have some introverted clients. A lot of my introverted clients need time to think, but they don't say to their boss who always calls brainstorming sessions, you know, I'm not good in brainstorming. I need time to think. Can you send me an email about what you'd like to brainstorm about, you know, the day before? That's like, that's, that's, some people will see that as, I don't know, uppity or whatever, because it's different from the way that the extroverts operate. But, but it's fair to say, this is how I work best. Can we come to some agreement about this? But then that takes courage. You have to have a courageous conversation. Yes. It's hard for people. Yes. Because again, you know, there's a model called uh, the five behaviors of a cohesive team. And it's based on Patrick Lencioni's work uh, called uh, The Five Dysfunctions of a Team, which is a sort of a classic business book. And if you visualize a pyramid with the bottom, the base of the pyramid is trust. And so Lencioni's idea is no team can get to results, which is the peak of the pyramid, unless they have this foundation of trust. And unfortunately, in the working world today, whether you're in business, you're in nonprofits, you're in, you know, healthcare, wherever you're at, trust is the thing that is missing in most organizations and most teams. Because if you trust me and I trust you, which is true, I do trust you. But if I, if we're in a workplace and you and I have to have a difficult conversation, it's easier for us to communicate when we have this baseline of trust. Um, it's easier for us to have conflict and disagreement if we've got that baseline of trust. Because I know you're not out to screw me. You're out to just make the end result better. So this focus on trust, um, if you trust people, you, you will have more success. Now, the problem is, is that a lot of us have inherited ideas that, you know, one, you never trust anybody. Everybody's out to get you. Second of all, you can never trust your boss, your boss because your boss is the man and the man is always out to screw you. Plus a million other kind of those in those realms, those ideas. But if you can create a trusting relationship with your coworkers and your bosses and the guy in the parking garage, everybody, you actually have a better degree of success, which then allows you to take it larger, to think larger, to go bigger. So going back to trust, um, I, I think trust also starts with you being able to trust yourself. Yes. Yes. You know, whenever we ask any, somebody else needs to trust me, really, we need to swap out those pronouns. And it's equally true that I need to trust myself. Mm-hmm. Yes. And a lot of people don't trust ourselves because, you know, as kids, your parents would say something like, oh, you don't want that. Mm-hmm. Well, yes, I actually do want red licorice because your parents wanted a Snickers bar. You got a Snickers bar mm-hmm. if you're like my family. Well, you, maybe you wanted red licorice. And so you didn't know when, you know, we were not, a lot of us were not trained as children to have preferences. It's the greatest thing a parent can do for a kid is to allow a kid to have preferences. And even if the preference is not my preference, you know, if my kid wants red licorice, but I would actually prefer an ice cream sandwich, I need to own that my ice cream sandwich is my preference. Theirs is for something else, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. 
No, you're right. It, that learning how to trust oneself starts at such a young age. And then if you get messages and you grow up with messages that people are out to screw you, it's going to be so hard. You can't trust yourself and you can't trust others. And that's quite a predicament to be in. And if you've ever been in a situation where you've been in a relationship with, oh, a psychopath, sociopath or a narcissist, narcissist. right, where, you know, where you've been gaslighted, which is a reference to an old film from the 40s where um, a guy, uh, uh, to get a woman's fortune, he convinces her that she's going crazy. Um, the example would be, oh, the sky is blue. Well, no, it's not blue. It's about to rain. What, what is wrong with you? It's about to rain, right? Although you can look at it and you can see that the sky is blue, the person who's trying to gaslight you is trying to make you doubt your own perceptions of what's going on in the world. So if anybody's ever been in those kind of relationships, it's super hard to break out of that and learn and relearn to trust yourself and relearn to trust your intuition and to trust that you can actually have preferences. Have you observed that? Yes, absolutely. And, and but I think it t- it's again going back to what we were talking about earlier of testing and trying. Right. And here's the other part of trust. Don't you think that trust is a very vulnerable thing to do? Yes, because you can trust somebody and they're an individual and they could make a different choice. Mm-hmm. And and realizing that, you know, if they do something that, you know, may be really hurtful or, you know, a painful circumstance, a lot of times it really has nothing to do with you. Well, like cheating on your spouse, just hypothetically, exactly. right? Exactly. Is it, and there's a great book called Private Lies by Frank. I can't think of his last name. I'll, I'll try to think of it. But the, the book is called Private Lies. And this guy, this doctor is specializes in helping couples who've had um, infidelity in their marriage. And one of the key lines in his book is, any affair says more about the person who's in the, fa- the, in the affair than it does about the state of the marriage, mm-hmm. right? And so to just take that on board, because a lot of times there's shaming and blaming when a, a breach of trust, like an extramarital affair happens, is, is there's so much shaming and blaming. But if you can step back, if you're the person who's, you know, who has been, um, who's the non-offending partner, how do we say that, right? If you're, if you're the person whose spouse has cheated, you know, to step back and say, wow, this probably says more about this person and this person's needs than it does about the state of our marriage. What do I do with that information now? That can be really super helpful. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Frank Frank Pittman is his name. I just popped into my head. P-I-T-T-M-A-N. I'll put that book into the show notes. So those who are listening can just click on that. And I, I think that's so important, again, about if somebody can't trust you, it has more to do with them than it does to you. Because if they have had that internal message programmed into their brain, people are out to get you, right? If you're buying a house and you have this belief that your real estate agent is out to get you, you're not right. going to be able to trust them. And it has nothing to do with them. It has to do with your own belief. So going back to when it's about asking for a raise or or promotion or about trusting others, you have to trust yourself. Yes. And you can learn to do that, right? I mean, you can learn to trust yourself. One is by noticing when your intuition is right. 
mm-hmm. and not overriding your intuition. And all the other, the other one, uh, the other aspect of it is to um, begin to state your preferences. So if someone says to you, "Hey, where do you want to go for lunch?" Don't say, "I don't care." Where do you want to go? Mm-hmm. Say, mm, "I feel like going to, you know, Bonchon." I don't know if you have that there, but um, which is Korean fried chicken. It's fantastic. But you know, to have an opinion about where you want to go, and just by flexing that muscle a little bit, you can learn to trust yourself that you actually have an opinion um, can be super helpful. Michelle, thank you so much again for coming on my show. Do you know, I think you and I could probably wake up in the morning, start the recording and record until about six o'clock at night and never be tired of it. I think that's true. Yeah, Yeah, it would be great. I was reading this uh, article on Gail King on Vanity Fair and uh-huh. she said, it was like kind of like, what is, you know, a beautiful day for you? And she said, gorgeous weather, good food and great conversations. And I thought, oh, yes, that is, you know, ideal. Great conversations are one of my favorite things. And we just always have great conversations. So thank we you. We do. Thank you for having me. So what do you think? What does it mean to think bigger? And think bigger in your life doesn't mean that you have to be more famous or put yourself out there, but thinking bigger, thinking at a higher level in your life. And the one thing is I invite you to give yourself permission. Give yourself permission slips. Instead of waiting for somebody else's permission, really give yourself permission to think bigger. What would that look like? How would you think bigger in your life? thinking at a higher level, challenging yourself without somebody's permission. And when we don't need somebody else's permission, aren't we stepping into our own adulthood? We're being an emotional adult because when we wait for somebody's permission, we're being an emotional child, aren't we? And trust me, well, you don't have to trust me, actually. I've spent a lot of years waiting for permission, waiting for somebody to open these doors and waiting and waiting and then beating myself up. And what I know now is that I have to give myself permission because that's really, really valuable instead of waiting for somebody else. And it always goes back to being grounded in your values, in your strengths. It's not about puffing up and being better than somebody else, but really being grounded in the essence of who you are. That is so important. Something else I talk a lot about is this idea of ask versus demand. So when you give yourself permission to think bigger and think at a higher level in your life, you may ask difficult questions. You may seek out things that you want to do instead of waiting for somebody to find you. If you have a book to write, you write the book. Instead of waiting to be found, you show up. And here's the thing. When you ask you're willing to hear the answer no. You may not like the answer no. It may not feel good. It may trigger a lot of the drama that's in our minds that likes to beat us up, those shame gremlins. They love to have a big old party in there. But when we really ask and get clean with when I ask, they can say no. Because that is very different than a demand. A lot of times we give somebody a demand, but we dress it up in a question. Have you ever had that? Somebody asks you something, but 
you also know that no is not going to be okay. It's not an acceptable answer. So I invite you to go into asking and not demanding. That means you have to be okay with no. And if you're on the other side, if somebody's demanding of you, remind yourself, give yourself permission that you can say no. There may be consequences. Of course, there may be fallouts. But what's the worst thing that can happen? I'm really thinking about that. I want to circle back to this whole I deserve this because we talked about it a bit. And I do have this um, sense that it's we there there are fundamental rights and in our lives. But when we sometimes notice when you say I deserve it, where are you rooted? I think that's really important because it's not even so much the that sentence but it's the energy behind it. If you're in shame, if you're not feeling good enough, then when you say, I deserve it, it's more of a puff up. It's more of like, let me show you. And I know that part really well. Versus, um, you know, when you're kind of, I deserve it. And I'm trying to think about an example. And I mean, I guess women's rights, like, yes, I deserve the ability to vote. I stand on the shoulders of women that came before me, but I don't need to fight about it or puff up about it. It's a right. It's a right that women have earned. Done. Not a whole lot of drama. So with with that whole letting go of I deserve it, get really clear about what it is that you want. And that one's hard. I've done so many shows about asking for what you want, getting clear about what you want. And that is such a practice, getting clear about what you want. Because what if you don't get it? What if you get disappointed? But here's the thing. If you really go out there and pursue something that you want, and you get disappointed, is it all that bad? You're disappointed, but you can move through that. We can get back up. We can survive disappointment. And while I don't seek it and I don't like it and I can have my own struggles with it, I also, once I can get past my pity party or past really the sadness and that difficult feeling of disappointment, I remind myself that I will too get through this. There will be a way, even when I can't see it, even in the darkness. So I invite you to really pursue what you want and understand that, yes, when you go after what you want, there's going to be disappointment. We are way more resilient than we think, than we even realize. I want to thank you guys so much for being so patient with me, with my shows and with my website. The new one's going to be coming out soon. I know I've been saying this for a year. This is the longest drawn out saga, but it's coming. And for those of you that have struggled listening to my show, I'm not quite sure what's going on. It is playing now, but one of the things that myself and other listeners have figured out is if you have a subscription on your iPhone, you actually have to go in and delete it and then resubscribe. Otherwise, it's not going to load for the feeds. I do not know why that's happening. If that's happening to you, that's what you need to do. And it actually works. I've had a lot of listeners email me because they were afraid they didn't want to do that and lose their bookmarks. And then sign up for my newsletter. This is another opportunity for you and I to get get in touch with each other. And sometimes I put these old shows that I have in there that are just still so valuable. And it's a lot easier than having to shift through the 500 different shows that I have. So thanks so much for listening. And until next time, I'm smiling big for you. Drifting, never been so. Wild.